All right. So last week, um, I, I, I need to, this is both for the recording, but also to correct the record, those of you that were here. Um, I did a little foray into geography and talking about the Australian Alps. The Australian Alps. Anybody ever been to the Australian Alps? They're beautiful. They're beautiful. Um, actually, I, I went back and I found the reference that I was trying to kind of from memory um, elucidate uh, in, in this whole study of uh, Augustine. By the way, did you guys practice your pronunciation of Augustine this week? It's not Augustine. I heard about that. I, I heard that the whole pronunciation debate that we settled in our class last week, that it made its way into Shane's thinking such that in his session at the counseling retreat, he, he was reading a quote from Augustine, and he paused for a second and said, I need to make sure I get this right. I thought that was so funny. It's hard for me, too, because I listened to, again, I've, been, I've listened a couple of times to John Piper's sort of biographical sketch on Augustine, and he pronounces it Augustine. So I just listened to that you know, yesterday, and that pronunciation is in my head. So we can't use Piper anymore. So, you can't, so Piper, Piper, I mean, I'm not sure if he's being called up for church discipline or what's going on there, but, but uh, that was kind of a fun little anecdote that I heard yesterday when Alicia got home from the counseling conference. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, we, we, talk, we were talking about, obviously we introduced uh, sort of a little uh, study, uh, an exploration of Augustine. I almost did it. Did you see that? Of Augustine. Um, <laughs> And his sort, of, his sort of contribution, his massive, actually, contribution to, um, to Christian theology and to an understanding of the doctrine of salvation and, and just, just a vast contribution, prolific uh, amounts of writing that he did and, and really an insight that he brought uh, to bear on key doctrines of the faith. Um, but they're, they're, let me read the reference to let you know. By the way, this, this reference refers to the Swiss Alps, but I, you know, Shane was in the room last week, and I just that prior, prior to that Sunday, I had seen a post on Instagram of Benjamin, his son, who was actually doing study abroad in Germany, and he had gone to Tyrol, Austria, and was in the Austrian Alps, and so, and, and one of the things that caught my attention was, and he even said it, and it was like a little video post of how, you know, he, I, one of the things he said was, you know, the, what I'm showing you, it just does not do it justice. I mean, he was just basically overwhelmed at the majesty and beauty and magnitude of, of, the, of the Alps and everything, and so it just fit right into what I was saying, but I kept, he was in the Austrian Alps, and I kept saying Australian Alps. <laughs> So I thought, you know, I got to I got to correct the record officially. I want to read this to you. Plus, it's I think a really a, um, a good way to view this this study of Augustine and kind of put it into some perspective. Um, this is from Piper's sketch. By the way, I lean really heavily on on his biographical biographical sketch of Augustine uh, for for a lot of what I'm going to be talking about again today. He says this: virtually virtually everyone who speaks or writes on Augustine has to disclaim thorough, thoroughness. Benedict Groeschel, who has written a recent introduction to Augustine, visited the Augustine Heritage Institute adjacent to Villanova University, where the books on Augustine comprise a library of their own. Then he was introduced to Augustine's five million words on computer. He speaks for many of us when he says, quote, I felt like a man beginning to write a guidebook of the Swiss Alps. After 40 years, I can still meditate on one book of the Confessions. 
during a week-long retreat and come back feeling frustrated that there is still so much more gold to mine in those few pages. I, for one, know that I shall never in this life escape from the Augustinian Alps. So you can see how I had Augustinian Alps in my mind, and I pronounced it Australian Alps when I was referencing the Austrian Alps. You understand how all that works, right? John Piper goes on to say, but the fact that no one can exhaust the Alps doesn't keep people from going there, even simple people. He says in his sermon, people can go to the Alps, and even though they can't take it all in, they can still benefit greatly from the experience. And he's, he's sort of setting this up to say, even those that have invested their life of study and research in in immersing themselves in the writings and works of Augustine, feel like that they haven't even begun to scratch the surface. So Piper sets this up and says, this is what it's like for those who invested a life of study and research. And then I'm coming along to you as John Piper to to try to give you a little biographical sketch on this as a simpleton by comparison. And I thought to myself, so now here I come. So you've got people who have devoted their life to studying Augustine, and it's as though they're trying to grasp the Alps and they'll never get there because it's just too much to take in. To Piper, who is devoted... I mean, Piper would consider the, the, um, the writings of Augustine to be at the root of his Christian hedonism, his, his sort of understanding of, of Christianity, which basically is summed up in the phrase, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So he, he, he calls the, 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 the doctrine of sovereign joy that Augustine speaks of, that we talked about a little bit last week and we'll continue on with today, this doctrine of sovereign joy that Augustine articulates, he says this is the Augustinian roots of Christian hedonism. So Piper based a lot of his understanding of the doctrines of grace and salvation and sovereign grace on his reading and exploration of Augustine. And now here I stand... I don't know what that, uh, we, here's what's going to happen. You and I are going to continue to eat from the kids' table. Uh, that's just the bottom line. We are, we're, just imagine we're not, we're not at a big feast that's been prepared by a master chef, and you're going to consume the perfectly balanced portions for the maximum benefit of your nourishment. You're basically at the kids' table with me. We got some Cheerios, and we got some goldfish, and, you know, and maybe, maybe some beef jerky or something, but... Uh, but uh, nonetheless, hopefully it will be beneficial, and hopefully it will be an encouragement uh, to you as it has been so far for me. We talked last time about the bright lights of the Reformation. Uh, you guys, I asked the question, and immediately the names that came out without even any prompting were Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. And of course, I read statements that, that refer to their, and their um, taking inspiration and encouragement and understanding from their study of Augustine and his understanding of sovereign grace. Luther, it says, buried himself in Augustine's writings. Calvin, the theology of Augustine greatly impacted Calvin. In fact, uh, Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other patristic father. And then, of course, Zwingli diligently studied the church fathers and Augustine being the preeminent one of the church fathers that he studied. So you have this, this this reservoir of material and thought and doctrine and study and writing that is attributed to Augustine that really 
were the seeds of the Protestant Reformation a thousand years later. And anyone who understands history understands that the Protestant Reformation was not just of, did not just have religious impact. It, it was a historic. I mean, when you study uh, history, world history, in a secular class, you will study the Protestant Reformation. So that's, that just kind of gives us, again, reminds us of this, this impact uh, of Augustine on our lives even today. If you trace it through those trails, it, it kind of it, it, it bears upon us the realization that, that this is a man that we probably should uh, look into, pay attention to, and learn from. Augustino Trepe, uh, an Italian scholar and uh, clergyman from a number of decades ago, wrote a book, St. Augustine, Man, Pastor, and Mystic. And he gives this summary on Augustine. He was a, one of these guys that had, you know, like I said, written prolifically on Augustine, so he read a ton of Augustine, studied him, studied his life and his writings. And he writes this summary about the powers that Augustine had that made him such an incro- incomparable force in history of the church, in the history of the church. Trappé says this, Augustine was a philosopher, theologian, mystic, and poet in one. His lofty powers complemented each other and made the man fascinating in a way difficult to resist. He is a philosopher, but not a cold thinker. He is a theologian, but also a master of the spiritual life. He is a mystic, but also a pastor. He is a poet, but also a controversialist. Every reader thus finds something attractive and even overwhelming. Depth of metaphysical intuition, rich abundance of theological proofs, synthetic power and energy, psychological depth shown in spiritual ascents, and a wealth of imagination, sensibility, and mystical fervor. Piper says that he thinks that this quote captures what his experience has been in studying the writings and doctrines of Augustine as well. So obviously, this is a man who was uniquely gifted by God, who had providentially walked a particular journey that, that served to really help inform him of the workings of God in the hearts of men to bring them to repentance and salvation, and then, and, and then gifted him with powers of insight and thought and reflection to be able to understand what the scriptures are teaching and then write very, very cleverly, even poetically and compellingly about these truths in a way that is accessible. In fact, when you, when you think about Augustine and you think about his writings and his work and you put them into the category of one of these, these old theologians from centuries past, these patristic fathers, and you start thinking about that, and if any of you have ever you know, taken the time to... to pick up something by Athanasius or Jerome or one of these names that you've heard bantered about or maybe even you've become a a bit of a student in at some point in time in your life, you will find that some of it's hard to read. It's hard to access. But I would tell you that if you just start with the Confessions of Augustine and just read those, very accessible. It's this blend of accessibility and depth, like compelling almost overwhelming at times depth that you read when you read the Confessions. So a very gifted man, uh, no doubt, and that's sort of an understatement at this point. We talked last week about how um, really at the heart of his battle 
uh, leading up to his conversion was his struggle with lust and sensuality. This, this was at the core of his, his struggle. And really it speaks to sort of the more broader issue for everyone, and that is that what is at the core of man's desire? What, 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 what is man longing after? And really what he would argue is that man pursues, goes after, aspires to that which he most desires. Even the things that end up being harmful to him. If you boil it down, if you peel back all the layers, all the rationale, all the circumstantial excuses, you know, well, the reason I did this is because they did that. If you peel all that back, it boils down to man pursues that which is at the core of his utmost or most preeminent desire. So his understanding of salvation gets all the way back to the most initial point, that initial point of desire. And of course, this was something that was prominent for him in his understanding and the battle that he fought and his carnal passions and desires. It was like he was in bondage to it. And he knew that. And despite all of his efforts of his willpower and all of his pursuits of intellect and education and erudition, he could not escape this desire for, for satisfaction in this area of his life. And it led him to, you know, pursue things that were illicit and, and unhelpful un, un and not good for him and created and, and sort of perpetuated the turmoil that he was wrestling with. And nonetheless, he pursued it. So, he, so this kind of gives you a little bit of context and helps us to see that, that this really helped him to, to unpack this once his eyes were open to the truth. As he reflected back on his own journey and he saw what was going on, that's, that's why when people read him and, and write of, of Augustine, they talk about how his depth of insight and his own reflection uh, on his own nature, not in a, not in a sense of... of um, of narcissistic navel-gazing and just looking at your own self, but looking at yourself through the lens of truth and Scripture and evaluating it accordingly, assessing yourself clearly. When you think about the path to salvation, does it not have to begin with a very unvarnished, God-provided vision of your utter wickedness before him, right? I mean, you you don't get there all by yourself. You don't just all of a sudden realize, man, I'm really sinful. You have to, by God's grace, capture a vision of the holiness of God and your not holiness before him, kind of like Isaiah in the temple where he just falls at the presence of God because he is a wretched man with unclean lips and he lives among a people of unclean lips. I mean, you have to come to that place and God brings that about in the hearts and minds of men. And so Augustine really just sort of unpacks that with, with clarity and with precision and with passion. And he's, he's, he basically elucidates or he opens up this whole vista of understanding about salvation and about the Christian life that is driven not by pure duty to a set of rules and standards and sacraments, and fulfilling all the, the regulations of the church, but that the Christian life is about pursuing your deepest joy and delight 
in the source of all joy and delight, that is God himself. To get beyond the understanding of, I need to do this because I'm a good Christian and it's the right thing for me to do, to find utter and complete, even ravished joy and delight in doing what pleases God out of a sense of love to, to please Him. Totally, totally opened up this whole understanding of what it meant to be a Christian, particularly in his, his time. We talked last time about uh, his conversion experience that was basically this, this uh, story of this torment that he felt, not being able to be free from these desires, and then the light of God's grace just sort of opened up his eyes as he read from Romans, and read from Romans chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, he says this, he said, I, he, heard, he, said he heard a voice of, of, that sounded like a child saying uh, that he should read this. So he hurried back to the place where his friend was, and he opened up the Bible to Paul's epistle. He says, In silence I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in reveling and in drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. He says, I had no wish to read more and no need to do so, for in an instant... As I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. So leading up to that point, he was in wrestling torment for freedom. And then, like in an instant, the truth and power and clarity of God's word penetrated all of that muck and mire and confusion and torment and his eyes were instantaneously open. That's, that's the account of his conversion testimony. Now, we talked about how you know, this, this led him on this journey of, of writing about this experience and really understanding more and more the depths of God's grace and how, is it, how it is affected in the heart and life of man, those who truly come to faith. Um, probably one of the bigger um, sort of controversies that we know of Augustine, those of us that have done even just a cursory um, survey of some of, the, some of the history here around this time of Augustine, is his, his battle against Pelagius. How many of you have heard the name Pelagius, right? Or Pelagianism is the, the sort of, I guess, the system of belief or the theology or the doctrine that is attributed to Pelagius. And, and so you think about the testimony of Augustine that I just described, and you understand what Pelagius believed, and you can see we've got a problem. <laughs> we are going to have a massive, massive conflict here. So let me just give you a little bit of information. Again, we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about you know, Pelagianism and, and Augustinian understanding of the doctrines of grace. We're just going to kind of you know, tap into what the essentials are here. Um, but... Pelagius was a monk. He was a contemporary of Augustine. He was a British monk, and he, he lived in the same time period as Augustine. And uh, he actually made his way from, from, um, from Britain to Rome to, to actually to Hippo, where Augustine was. But he began teaching a doctrine that obviously became associated with his name. And, and essentially, he was frustrated by the the lament or even maybe the rationale and the excuses of people 
who were pursuing their passions and sin and basically confessing that they just couldn't help themselves. They just, you know, they just, they couldn't do anything about it. It's just my nature. It's my sin nature. And they, they, it was like they were making excuses for constantly succumbing to the temptations of the flesh. And that was a point of frustration for Pelagius. So to counter that, Pelagius emphasized and stressed in his teaching and his instruction the power and place and purpose of the freedom of the human will. So Pelagius would say, stop making excuses. You have free will. Don't say that your flesh made you do this. The devil made me do it. You know, don't say you couldn't help yourself. Basically, you're abdicating what is yours and that you have a, a free will, a freedom to choose. And that sin is a result of your conscious choice of evil over good, and that's it. That's the only, only thing you need to know. Everyone, he's, he would argue, has the ability to choose the good over the evil. Everyone. He would even argue that the unregenerate, if they are able to exercise enough willpower, can do good and not sin. Now, what do you think is behind Pelagius' understanding of free will if it would go to that length in terms of saying that even someone who's unregenerate could actually exercise their free will if it was strong enough to choose good over evil? What would he have to argue about the nature of sin and evil to be able to logically and coherently justify that? Okay, which would mean what? There you go. He would deny the, 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 the comprehensive, corruptive nature of original sin. That's what he would deny. He would argue that original sin, that Adam, we sin, we fall into sin as we follow the example of Adam. Not that Adam's sin was a federal headship kind of sin that cast the entire population of humanity that you know going forward into sin but that man is born with a neutral nature and thus exercises his freedom of will and conscience to choose to do good or to do evil that's right that's right so, there, so in other words, the, 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 his understanding of the corruptive nature of, of original sin was not comprehensive in nature at all. So, very, very different understanding. Now, just to, just to make sure we kind of understand how contrary this is to some of the clearest teaching in Scripture, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. And I'm not going to do a, a big study on this, but just to make sure we understand probably the best and most clear you know, teaching on the nature of original sin, the impact of original sin, and, and how it is not just something that characterizes original sin and its consequence, but it also is the, the same principle that governs the nature of the atonement that Christ accomplished. Okay? So... Look at uh, Romans chapter 5 and just read, starting in verse 12. 
Again, I know I'm picking up in the middle of the context here, but just so we know as a reference point, and I would encourage you to, to make sure you're familiar with this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if, if many died through one man's trespass, much more having the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So you notice how the Apostle Paul establishes the nature of Christ's atonement as the, the remedy, the only remedy in the same manner as Adam's sin was the source by which man was cast into a corrupt nature. Okay? So, in other words, the substitutionary nature of the atonement is taught here in Romans chapter 5 in contrast to, or in comparison to, if you will, the nature of original sin and its impact on us. But uh, Pelagius would not accept this as... the he would, he would interpret this completely differently. So you can see how Augustine is going to have a problem with this kind of thinking, or you, you should be able to kind of at least begin to, to see it. Um, Again, Pelagius would say Adam's sin was solely his own. His descendants did not inherit a sinful nature passed down to them. That God creates every human soul directly, and therefore every human soul starts out in innocence, free from sin. We are not basically bad. We are basically good. So that's the, that's the core doctrine of Pelagius. And again, he was motivated, or exercised is probably a better way to describe it, by the excuse-making that he found amongst the people of God who would say, I am sinning because I can't help myself because I have a sin nature. So, How did he justify his statements? Did he back it up with Scripture? Well, yes, but the difficulty is, is that a lot of his works were destroyed. So you, you, have, you, know, you don't have his direct, a lot of his direct works. You have references to them. Yeah, every, it's just like every other errant teaching. It's this, it's, there's always a, a reference point to Scripture, but there's a reinterpretation of it. Well, uh, again, you have to remember, too, that allegorizing the text, this is another reason why even in that day and time, uh, and even Augustine used allegorical methods of interpretation, particularly in the Old Testament. That, that helped him greatly to... to to satisfy some of his aversion to some of the things that he read in the Old Testament was to, be, was to interpret them allegorically. So that was a prevalent method of interpretation, which gave rise to any number of heretical-type doctrines because you can kind of make things mean what they need to mean for your purposes. You come at the text with a predetermined idea that you just then need to validate in some way. So... But yes, that was that was his uh, that was that was at the core of his doctrine. Now, as I said, Augustine's doctrine was one of sovereign joy, and that's a key key locution there. That's a key way to, to understand this sovereign joy. In other words, a, a 
a disposition of heart and mind toward God that is placed there by God. That, that means that man takes his joy in the ultimate source of joy, namely God himself. Augustine would say it this, this way, particularly as it relates to this idea of man having freedom to choose. He says this, During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? And then he says, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts, you who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. His understanding of grace is God giving us sovereign joy in Him, in Himself. And it's that joy that triumphs over sin. It's not that we just have within us, innately, because we are not corrupted by Adam's fall, we have within us, innately, the ability to choose the good, to choose the things that would please God or the commandments of God. No, Augustine would argue I didn't have free will. My will was in total bondage to sin. But then you replaced that with a joy and a delight in you and in the things that please you, so much so that that joy is what, is what triumphs itself over the sin and my passions. Piper says this, God works deep in the human heart to transform the springs of joy so that we love God more than sex or anything else. Referring particularly to Augustine and his pronounced struggles there. Loving God in Augustine's mind is never reduced to deeds of obedience or acts of willpower. He never makes the mistake of quoting John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and claiming that love is the same thing as keeping Christ's commandments when the text says that keeping Christ's commandments results from loving Christ. In other words, he says, you can't truly keep the commandments of Christ apart from him changing your perspective on love and love of Christ and therefore loving his commandments. In other words, the true believer, the truly regenerate believer doesn't just keep the commandments of Christ in order to prove out his love. It's the love that Christ has placed in him that compels him to keep the commandments, which he also loves. That your love and my love for the very commandments that Christ has given you has been placed there by God himself. And that's very different than what you see amongst people who have a very legalistic understanding of Christianity or of religion in general. People can look at certain commandments of God, especially when it comes to the moral law, and they, by their own experience, would attest to, you know what? If I pursue this with reckless abandon, it will lead to very destructive patterns and consequences in my life. Thus, I can see the wisdom of this command. You know, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. If you pursue a life of theft, you will 
likely find yourself in legal trouble, if not incarcerated, right? I mean, in other words, people can sort of, by their own experience, they can logically and experientially ascertain sort of the rationale, the good advice, the good judgment of this command versus that command. But it doesn't mean that they love it. I love taking things from other people when I think that I want them for myself. That's what I love. But I might choose not to just so I don't get caught and go to jail. And I would argue that there are many Christians who live with a mindset and a heart disposition that is very much the same as the thief I just described when it comes to the commandments of Christ. And Augustine would argue that the essence, the essence of true salvation is a replacement of our loves. A complete renovation. That's why you have in the Apostle Paul and other places, you have these extreme concepts being put before us of being dead and being made alive. The Scriptures don't want us to misunderstand what is really going on here. You weren't sort of more interested in bad, and now we're going to make you more interested in good. It's far worse than that. So, so, the, so Augustine really taps into this understanding and, and really presses it. Loving God is being so satisfied in God and so delighted in all that He is for us that His commandments cease to be burdensome. Augustine saw this, and we need him badly today to help us recover the root of all Christian living in the triumphant joy in God that dethrones the sovereignty of laziness and lust and greed. And he saw this, Augustine saw this principle as universal. He says this, Every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this, and each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever, in fact, desires other things, desires them for this end alone. So do you understand that? He's saying even someone who desires something other than happiness, they're desiring that ultimately for happiness on the other side of what they think is in in front of it. An example, a very simple example would be, um, I I am going to, just like I gave you, you obeying the command not to steal, well, my happiness even though I say in, in the sort of temporal short term on the surface, I really want to take that thing that doesn't belong to me, but I'm much more happy if I don't go to jail. So I'm still in, in not pursuing the thing that I think that I want that's right in front of me and taking it illicitly and illegally. I'm still, by denying myself that, I'm still choosing my ultimate happiness because I desire more to stay out of jail. That's what he's arguing for here. So this is a universal reality. You don't even have to put this into the context of the believer, and it's 10 o'clock, and I've got to hurry up and finish. So I want to get to a little bit more about this idea of man's free will. Piper goes on to say, God's giving us a sovereign joy in God that triumphs over all other joys, God gives us this, and therefore it sways the will. The will is free to move toward whatever it delights, most, delights in most fully, but it is not within the power of our will to determine 
what that sovereign joy will be. Therefore, Augustine, August, Augustine <laughs> concludes, quote, A man's free will indeed avails for nothing except to sin if he knows not the way of truth. And even after his duty and his proper aim shall begin to become known to him, unless he also take delight in and feel a love for it, he neither does his duty nor sets about it, nor lives rightly. Now, in order that such a course may engage our affections, God's love, this is quoting from Romans, God's love is shed abroad in our hearts, not through the free will which arises from ourselves, but, quote, through the Holy Spirit which is given to us, Romans 5. Verse 5. For Augustine, freedom is to be so much in love with God and his ways, says Piper, that the very experience of choice is transcended. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is very insightful about this. Piper goes on The ideal of freedom is not the autonomous will poised with sovereign equilibrium between good and evil. Let me say that again. The ideal of freedom is not the autonomous will, completely unhindered, completely free, Pelagian understanding of will, autonomous. It's not the autonomous will poised with sovereign equilibrium between good and evil. The ideal of freedom is to be so spiritually discerning of God's beauty and to be so in love with God that one never stands with equilibrium between God and an alternate choice. Rather, one transcends the experience of choice and walks under the continual sway of sovereign joy in God. In other words, we catch a glimpse of the beauty of God, and that glimpse is made possible through the sovereign grace and working of God. And that beauty and that joy and that delight and that pleasure In your presence are pleasures forevermore, the psalmist says. That pleasure and that joy that's found in the presence of God, walking with God, so outshines and surpasses anything else that there's no, your whole will is swayed in that direction. There's not even a comparison between the two. Man, there's so much more here I want to say. I'm going to have to stop there. There's no way I can wrap this up. So next time, we're going to kind of finish up this debate between free will and this, the sovereignty of man's will versus the bondage of man's will. We're going to talk about the place of prayer in our pursuit of joy, the sovereignty of God and, and joy and evangelism, and then we'll wrap it up. Gosh, I'm just having to stop. Okay, any final thoughts or questions before we... Close in prayer. All right, let's pray.